Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast, the football podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as analysis on all the top clubs in world football. We're back this week with a very special guest, um, someone who's been on the podcast before. I think of him as the the doyen of of Scottish football writers, um, although based in England for many years now, Jonathan Northcroft, who, who has just launched a, a new book, his latest book, in tandem with Peter Schmeichel. Um, I think some of you have probably already bought it and started reading it, but we're going to talk about that in more detail later. Um, we will also have a substantial section on the current Manchester United team. Um, but we have to start today, I think, with Tottenham Hotspur and the uh, return of Antonio Conte to Premier League football. Um, contract has been agreed until 2023. We can tell you that it, although that's a relatively short term contract, there is an option included um, on Antonio Conte's side should he wish to continue at uh, what we call the naming rights lane for a longer period if things go well. This has been driven very much by um, Fabio Paratici, the uh, managing director of football who came in in the summer and uh, I think it's fair to say hasn't really covered himself in glory so far with a number of failed attempts to appoint a number of coaches that summer, most prominent amongst them Antonio Conte. Um, and. Uh, the ultimate decision to sign Nuno Espirito Santo and sack him after just 10 games. Jonathan, what is your feeling on what's happened at Tottenham? Is it, did this come as a surprise to you to see Conte coming back to English football and choosing a club that are well down the Premier League and uh, well away from Champions League football at present? I don't. And, and, well, to unpick that, I mean, not surprised uh, at Nuno's departure, and I was at White Hart Lane or the new naming rights stadium or whatever you want to call it on on Saturday, and it was the performance of a team um, that was. I don't like the cliche about playing for the manager to get sacked, but certainly in, indifferent to the guy in the dugout and, and indifferent to his fate, and um, you know, classic case of players who uh, in a in a trough of form and blaming. Um, someone else other than themselves and, and I think what was really fatal for Nuno was the utter disconnect with the supporters when you're in a stadium like that um, you know it's such a beautiful arena and it's such a vast stadium these days and echoing around um, the stands are, is a chorus of you know we want Nuno out don't know what you're doing um, mm. I think they were booed about eight times during the second half that's a point of no return because we know that Daniel Levy um, acts quickly um, when uh, he's next in the firing line, I guess. <laughs> um, and um, I th- I, look, it was a flawed appointment to start with um, and, and he had to go. I think the surprise with Conte is what you allude to, the, the lowly nature of, of, of Spurs at the moment. Um, Conte is a winner. Um he exists to win. He's so intense about winning and he's giving himself a real challenge there because he's, you know, I think I described it on Saturday as Spurs are looking like the sixth best team in London at the moment. You know, ne- never mind 
um, even the sixth best team in the Premier League. So if Conte wants to win there, he's got a lot of ground to make up. Um, also, a job that he rebuffed in the summer. So there's there's, there's yeah. a curiosity there. But I think it's I think it's Fabio Paratici, isn't it? I think that's the 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 the, the thing that makes sense is reuniting with a director of football that that he has been very close to before. Hasn't always been smooth, but but we're, the men enjoyed success together and the attraction of London. And he's a restless character, Conte. You know, in the summer, he had options. Now he's been out of work for, for four or five months and the nature of the beast, he's, he, he's, he's, he's an intense character. He'll want to get back working. So it's an interesting one. There's, 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 there's a couple of clear reasons for him to take it. And there's, there's several reasons why um, it could be the most difficult job of his career. Yeah, I, I, look, I've been doing a bit of work on this um, yesterday and this morning, and there's an interesting sort of personal element to it in that there were, I'm told there was a big attraction of coming back to English football. And, and obviously you want to be in English football if you're a manager of that status at the moment because it's the only league that has a lot of money to play with and, and is able to work in aggressively in the recruitment market if you're not going to Paris Saint-Germain, basically. And obviously Conte has this ambition to, to win the Champions League. I'm told he's been made big promises by Paratici. So there, there was obviously a, a, a massive financial incentive to come. I haven't got the exact figure yet regarding that number, but, um, but I'm told it is in the region of the, of the money he was given at Inter, which was 12 million euros net. So a wow. huge contract in, in Premier League terms. So Paratici's made them very big promises about what they will do and the kind of team they're going to build. I think that the, the plan is stabilise this season, get, if you can, get a Champions League place, and then we will put a lot of money into the market to build a team that can win the Champions League. Now that's good in the sense that Conte has bought into that and been convinced. The question mark obviously is whether Daniel Levy um, will go along with the promise that his uh, his sports director has made. There's also an element of his family wanting to go back to England. Um, his daughter, his 14-year-old daughter, um, Vittoria, um, for her education purposes, they were keen to come back to London. And, and that personal factor, I'm told, has is, is, is played a, a role in this decision. Um, and I, I, I would also find it quite interesting that Antonio Conte named his daughter after victory, um, <laughs> given, <laughs> given, given the way he operates as a coach. But, um, but yes, I, I, I agree with you. I think it, it's, um, it is a surprise to see him at a club like Tottenham. And it, there's a substantial challenge there because we've seen Maurizio Pochettino um, talk about how the club, how, how the, the, the squad needed a substantial rebuild. Um, you then have Jose Mourinho come in and come to the same conclusion. Um, you have Nuno come in and Nuno, as we talked about in this podcast, contributed to his own demise. There wasn't just the problems of the club support, but he did not fit well. Um, and we talked over a month ago that he was on um, borrowed time there. But 
the, the, the problems of substance, I don't think have gone away in that squad. It, it, if anything, they've increased. And I don't think Paratici's recruitment was very good in this last summer either. It's interesting as well. I, I agree with that. And, and I think you're quite right that you actually go back to Pochettino's time because I think that the narrative for Spurs has, has, has sort of got mangled a little bit with uh, a sort of prevailing view that everything was amazing under Pochettino and, you know, there was a little bit of a bad time at the end, but it didn't last very long. He went and then it's all sort of fallen apart since then. But actually, you know, to, that Champions League final in 2019 papered over cracks. Um, the Pochettino reign was pretty troubled towards the end. He was unhappy with that squad, very unhappy with this squad. Um in terms of the personnel and on a personal level with some of those players. So it was a squad that going back to that point needed revamped. And it's what Jose Mourinho identified, of course, as well, and wasn't able to to probably affect it as much as he'd have liked to. And then on top of that, there's there's a, a sort of, I don't know, middling transfer window, I would say. Um, I, 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 there's, you know, Paratici signed some good potential, I think, in the summer with Romero and, and Kiel, but didn't sign players necessarily for now to get Spurs back up to that level and, and probably signed in an unbalanced way. Um, you know, there's, there's, they've got a lot of centre-backs, but are any of them actually that good is, is, is one question. Um, and, you know, a squad that's still reliant on, on Harry Kane um, who's you know top of the list of, of issues for um, Conte to to deal with, um, and then this at a time when Manchester City, Liverpool, and Chelsea in particular just got better and better, added layers and layers of quality to their squads, um, leaving the the as I said the ground to make up even greater than it was at the end of Pochettino's reign and. As I said, at that point, it was difficult for Spurs and it's even, I don't know, in an even worse position now. He, we know from his entire career that he is a famously demanding coach, a famously demanding manager, not just demanding with his players, but demanding with his club. Um, does it look to you like a natural fit to bring him into a squad which um, is in that state of disrepair that you're talking about? and? Have him working with, um, I was going to say the famously intransigent Daniel Levy, but he has in, in recent years spent money at certain times before before switching to different strategies. Yeah, that's true. And, and actually, I do think one thing about Levy that, that gets missed sometimes is that, um, you know, he does, he does have a habit of delegating. Um, he was one of the very first, Chairman to to bring in a director of football into in, 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 into the you know English club games. So he's actually he's had times throughout the twenty years where he's he's had the director of football model and he's delegated, um, and he's gone back to that that model now with with Paratici. So I don't think he he necessarily meddles in terms of signing targets. But what he does meddle in is is actually getting the deals done. And that might be where difficulties arise, but that, that he sees that as his his domain, his his um his sort of superpower, as it were. And, and you know he's he, he's he's had he's 
got come out the right end of some deals in a spectacular way in the past, maybe the wrong end other times. But I don't think he's going to try and interfere with Conte um, and Paratici in terms of identifying targets. Where he will interfere, I suppose, is, is by setting the budget. But Spurs, you have to remember, are a self-sustaining club. Um, they're not an own, they're not, they don't rely on own investment. Yeah. They're unique among the, the big six clubs um, in having that status. Um, they've, they've managed to build a stadium and a training ground that are arguably the best in the world without um, owner investment. So there's actually a lot to admire about the model. And there's also a limitation about the model in terms of what they're ever going to put on the pitch. It means their recruitment has to be super clever to get around that. And there's been periods when they have had a really good run of recruitment and it has enabled them to um, push towards the top of English football. And then there've been periods where the recruitment's not been so clever and, and they sink back like they, they have now. And they, I think they are going to be very dependent on, on Paratici and, and Conte combining, I suppose, to, to really um, sign cleverly and, and sign to a blueprint and that's what maybe that's where there is an area of hope for Spurs in that Conte's got a very clear idea of what he wants in the pitch and he's worked with a sporting director before. So there should be absolute unity in terms of, of, of what they want. Um, but as I say, they're going to have to be very clever in this market in terms of getting it. Yeah, they, I believe he's on record as saying he thinks that the club got hit harder by COVID than, than any other in, in England. Um, but you're right to point out that they have their model is such and the, their expansion of the stadium is such that they have a lot of headroom in their basic revenue to, to wage ratio. And, and actually, you, you're talking about the, the, the setup and the, and the idea with Conte coming in reminds me that that's basically how the job was sold to Mourinho when he came in was mm. come in sort out the problems we, we've we've got ourselves into a difficult situation we need to change coach get us through this season and next summer we will have a go at um, spending in the way you want to spend to build a team to attack the Premier League so he's made that promise before and and I guess mm. his argument would be that COVID stopped him from fulfilling it. And and then he came to the conclusion that he'd appointed the wrong coach and the wrong manager to to fulfil it. Um, how do you think the players will respond to Conte's way of coaching them? Because he he has, yeah, as you say, he has a very set game plan and he has a very rigorous. Some some players will say it can be a boring way of of training them, repetitive way of training them. Yeah, this is fascinating. This this is the million dollar question, really, because um, I think. The, the, the players have been an issue certainly this season um, it was notable to me on Saturday and shocking actually that I think there was only one player really trying his absolute utmost in my opinion um, playing with, with, with you know courage and, and conscientiousness and that was Lucas Moura and, and everyone else was going through the motions even mm-hmm. Son even the famously positive and you know we 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 love the guy for his attitude so on even he was in a kind of despondent state and a lot of it I have to say symbolically flowed from from Harry Kane who 
I described it in my match report as, you know, when those, um, you know, recording artists have to make an album to see out a record deal that they don't want to be in anymore. So they just toss off a whole lot of useless tracks. That's what Harry Kane's been doing this season. Um, it was a, he also came up against a player that was too good for him in Raphael Varane, but he just, he absolutely set the tone in terms of a meek and, and disinterested performance. So how... Conte can affect those players is is going to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, Pochettino's success rested on being able to drive that group hard and and extract everything everything that they had. I think physically, maybe not mentally because they didn't get over the line, but physically from them. Um, and Conte's going to have to do the same. I think he might, you know, if he plays three five two, he'll have to change. Um, some of that personnel, they you know they 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 do have the personnel. I think more or less to play that, um, except the obvious um, issues with uh, the sort of lack of strike and depth. But um, that synergy between the players and, and Conte is going to have to be right. And I think the relationship between Kane and him, as I say, it's going to be so important to set the tone for everything else. Um, he's gonna he's gonna the, the, the Kane's going to have to change his attitude and Conte's going to have to find a way of of making that happen. Yeah, I, I mean, we had information in the summer that Nuno was open to Kane being sold because he realised mm-hmm. that the player wasn't turnable and um, and he felt the best solution for the, the the club was to take the money and, and get players who wanted to be there. Obviously, they didn't do that last time and that's going to be the challenge to Conte. I think you're absolutely right watching that game um, at the weekend, it was noticeable how often the Tottenham players were taking the easy option when they had the ball. Yeah, it was it was yeah. very much going through the motions and and uh, an empty an empty performance. Look, this time last week we were talking about Antonio Conte as a favourite to replace Uli Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United, um, and now he's at, at Tottenham Hotspur. Um, information I have is that after um, initial conversations with Manchester United following that 5-0 defeat at Old Trafford to Liverpool, in which Conte expressed his interest in uh, moving to English football, which he's obviously um, demonstrated uh, this weekend, um, it went quiet and and Conte's uh, team were wondering whether Manchester United were going to turn it into a concrete offer, but he had them ready um, should that happen. And they were, they were basically warned, you know, we could be going back to England and it looks like being Manchester United. So the conversations went dead then. There was a question yesterday, once Tottenham started talking to Conte again, whether that was an attempt to... Um, get Manchester United back to the table and and the answer was if it was it was a failed attempt uh, Conte will obviously tell us that there was nothing in, in that strategy but there were again I'm told no contact from Manchester United yesterday uh, or, or overnight so they have allowed this to happen at a time when um, I think fair to say that Solskjaer's tenure at, at Manchester United is more endangered than, than it's ever been did you expect that to happen, Jonathan, or or is it 
does it fit your understanding of the way the club is is run at the moment that they would they would pass up on the opportunity to acquire another of the elite coaches having missed out on Pochettino, missed out on Pep Guardiola, missed out on Jurgen Klopp. Something I think you wrote about at the weekend. First of all, um, the, you know, the club themselves have been briefing that, that they have had no desire to change managers, that they, that, that they want to stick with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for the season. And that has also tallied with a few things I've picked up um, from, from agents and contacts who speak to United's hierarchy, which is that you know, until really the, the Liverpool defeat, there was absolutely no um, planning or, or, or uh, inclination emotionally to even look at changing manager, absolutely nothing at all. Um, so what we've seen in the wake of that is a sudden, um, a sudden wobble, a sudden change of, of, of kind of temperature and, and um, a sudden looking at candidates and speaking to Conte and, and thinking, what do we need to do if, if we need to get rid of Solskjaer? And, and I wrote about this at the weekend. It just epitomises for me how reactive a football club Manchester United have, have become. I think it's been a problem since the Sir Alex Ferguson days. Um, but unlike their elite rivals, they have not been a football club um, with, a, with a vision, um, with a, an idea of, of what they want to, to look like on and off the pitch, uh, which players they need, what their systems are going to be in order to, um, uh, in order to, to achieve that vision. Yes, they've made appointments over the, the, the seven or eight years um, at different times to bring in structure and to, to um, bring in different managers, but there's, there's never been a kind of overarching joined up nature to it. So it doesn't surprise me at all um, that they're in this situa- situation where you know, they still spiritually want to back this manager, um, but almost belatedly realise that this might not be possible over the course of the season. Um, what are we going to do? They don't have the answer to that. I, I think even when a, 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 it is going well for a manager, a good club should be doing some kind of succession planning. In fact, if it's going well for a manager, they should know who the next guy is in order to carry on the good work. If it's not going well, they should have a list of replacements. If you look at how Guardiola came to um, Manchester City, it was, a, it was a process of several years starting with the recruitment of Soriano and Bagheristan. If you look at how Liverpool recruited Jurgen Klopp, again, it was, it was Michael Edwards and his department having a list of, first of all, um, the qualities that they needed from a manager on a personal level, on a football level, and then having an actual list of who fitted the bill. You know, I spoke to Michael Edwards many years ago and he, he told me about a scouting mission that he'd personally done um, where he, he, he went uh, to a, a hotel where a particular club were based because they were interested in deciding whether this, this club's manager should go on the Liverpool shortlist or not. And, and Edwards sat incognito in the hotel lobby listening to the, this manager chatting to his staff and came away and thought, no, he's not going on our list. That's not the type of personality we want. But that's a level of long-term planning that, 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 that they were doing. And that's what I think top clubs do. But Manchester United don't do and. You know, I, I just look, you want to, the, the thing that sums up this reactive football club for me at the moment is the fact that they're, the Glazers are now spending money on their stadium, which they haven't done for 16 years, but now there's a huge plan of works going on at, uh, 
uh, Old Trafford, they might expand the south stand. They've already put 20 million into sprucing up the ground and, and the training ground. Are they doing this because the, the Glazers have got some grand plan or vision of what they, they want from a business point of view? No, they're doing it because um, they have to apologize for the fan, to the fans because of the fallout of the Super League. So, you know, even a program, a capital works, is being done in reaction to a, 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 a situation, a PR situation. And it can be a PR situation, a football situation, a market situation. But Manchester United have been such a reactive football club. And it's why they ended up sacking Jose Mourinho with no real plan what to do and phoning Ole Gunnar Solskjaer when he was on his couch in, in, in Norway. I think the one thing that, that Solskjaer has done well, or the thing he's done best, he's done more than one thing well, he has tried to bring in some long-term thinking and some vision of his own. And, you know, we know what it is. It's the old Manchester United way thinking. It's the idea that we're a club that has a particular type of player. They come through our youth system or we sign them young and this is what they embody. And we do things where no one's bigger than the club and blah, blah, blah. I like all that because he's trying to give United something that goes beyond reacting to the here and now. And I'm not sure if Conte would have been the right man because there's value in what Solskjaer's done, leaving aside the results, there's value in what he's done in terms of giving the club an identity. And I do think that United, you know, they face two choices, either to start again, and I think that every time they start again, they're falling behind their rivals, or they try and keep of what's of value and build. And, and in my personal opinion, I think Conte would have been uh, a toss of a coin appointment. Um, and if they are going to change Solskjaer this season, they need to recognise what he's done well, what's now in place, and try and build on that. Because at some point, they've got to try and build at United and not just react. Yeah, look, the listeners to this podcast know what what um, what my opinion is on on Solskjaer. I've heard it often, and I think the the five nil to Liverpool was the embodiment of of the problems um, with having a a substandard manager who doesn't have the the experience um, and and the skill set to be in charge of a club of that nature. I think your your point about reactiveness is is perfect. I think it's a it's a sum, summation of the way the Glazers have operated throughout their entire period at the club, and I, and I think you actually you just have to look at the model they have at present and that they they've sold off the back of Solskjaer of. Manchester United DNA, which they love to to throw out, um, even in uh, in releases to the stock market these days, and and the the cultural reboot, um, that wasn't a strategy that was built while they were getting upset with Jose Mourinho. Um, they didn't sit in the corner thinking, right, we've gone the wrong way with this manager. It isn't going to work for us. Uh, what do we need to do? We need to go back to Manchester United basics. We need a cultural reboot. No, as you say, they 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 look to Solskjaer as an interim. Um, Solskjaer comes in, gets results, and they they think, ah, we there's something here we can work from. We like the response of the supporters. We like the response of of a lot of the players. So let's build a story about a reaction. There is no strategy there. It's post hoc. And, and I think I agree with you too that Conte would have been a risk in that environment and would, be, would have been a reactive appointment. 
So the question then is, if we're agreed that it's untenable to be to continue long-term with Solskjaer if your aim is genuinely to win the Premier League and the Champions League because of a range of fundamental problems, who do they go for when they, when they, they look at this process and they start devising a strategy to try and catch up with Liverpool, Manchester City, um, Chelsea? What should the strategy be and who's the coach that fits it? I mean, I, I think, okay, what are Manchester United? And, and I think at least by hook or by crook, Solskjaer has got them back to thinking about what Manchester, Manchester United should be, what makes them different. I think it's clearly um, a club that's, that, 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 that's got a special relationship with its academy and with development and adds absolutely elite talent around the products that it creates itself to create a special mix. And it's, it, it's a mix that involves attacking football and fantasy. And we, we, we know all that. So I think you're looking for a coach who's got that sort of track record um, of being able to, to meld development with um, the kind of, the, the stardust. It's possible. I, I think of the work that Thomas Tuchel's done at Chelsea. He's, he's, he's helped Chelsea square the circle there. He's using their young players. But he's adding, um, he's adding his coaching qualities, his elite football um, philosophy and organisation and, and detail and positional play and um, little ploys. Um, he's adding, you're using top players on top of all of that. He's, you know, what he's got out of Jorginho and Rudiger and um, I think Lukaku will ultimately help enhance that team as well. So there are these managers out there. They need someone in that mould. I think Klopp could have done that for them. I think Guardiola could have done that for them as well. Um, uh, at the moment, it may not be Conte. I think Julian Nagelsmann would be ideal. He's not going to leave by a minute for the next five, if not 10 years. Spoke to him recently. Um, in England, probably Brendan Rodgers is the closest. Now, you say that, and I wrote that at the weekend, and of course you get people coming back and saying, oh, but he hasn't won anything. Well, he's, he's won an FA Cup with Leicester, which is, you know, I live in Leicester. I know how historically, unbelievably special that is to that football club, and, and, and that's, that's upsetting the odds. And he, he did win quite a lot in Scotland, so I do think Brendan can win. I think he's a different manager to the, 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 the guy who left Liverpool. Um, and I do think he would combine um, elite coaching with development, with a sense of what Manchester United are. Um, and he's not the only candidate. There are candidates out there who I, I, think, I think could do it. I'm not sure if... Um, you know, Conte's there for one reason, and it's to win, which is fine. But the question is, what happens if you don't win? What are you left with? And, and um, that's why United, I think, have to do something lasting. And if, as you say, don't, they, they've, they've bought into this... DNA story. Well, they've got to show they believe in it then and make an appointment based on who's going to help us perpetuate this DNA. Why do they not have a list of the best coaches in Europe that is going to help them do that then? What, why, why are they being reactive? If that's what they believe in and they've believed in it for the last two or three years, they should know where they're going and they don't seem to. Yeah, which I think underlines that they are so reactive because they were happy 
to carry on with Champions League qualification. Um, a limited amount of criticism from prominent people in television media and the idea that it's part of a process and we'll get there in the end. So that the, there wasn't a long-term strategy there. There was a kind of survival strategy, which has got them into the position they're in now. Um, look, there's no doubt Brendan Rodgers would be interested in the Manchester United job, just as he's interested in the, the Manchester City job. And um, I think we've we've talked on this podcast with Ian McGarry about how he's kind of been doing some groundwork towards um, moving from Leicester to to a a higher ranked club in the Premier League in the not too distant future. What do you think it would cost to get Brendan Rodgers out of Leicester City at present? Because they are they're not a club that um, struggles for financial resource, and and they're a club you know you know very well, Jonathan. They're not, and actually, you know, I think there's two things. There's the, they they just look at less than the transfer market. They do not sell cheap. They also don't sell quickly. To get a player out of Leicester, um, from speaking to you know people on the other side of the fence trying to make it happen, it's a process. You, you know, what what the Leicester ownership are not going to be is pushed around. So. The classic way of getting a player out of Leicester would be to raise the prospect one summer and, and try and get the deal done the next and, and do it right and, and, and give them top price and spend the time um, making the negotiations happen you know, nicely and smoothly. So if they want Brendan Rodgers, they would have to, they would have to pay a lot of compensation um, and they would, they would need to have a dialogue i think that would would um would, would would be a dialogue over time um and i would suggest it might be one of those that they would they would have to say look we will take him at the end of the season if, if we can do a deal on this and brendan himself isn't gonna he's not the you know i, I know the celtic situation um caused uh a lot of controversy and he did walk out in celtic but i don't think he would do the same to Leicester. Um, I don't. I, I really don't think he would. I think he's quite conscious of his reputation. As you mentioned, there's the Manchester City um, possibility. Manchester City have been working on Brendan Rodgers for years. He's been on their list for years. You know, he 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 knows that they like him. They let him know that they like him um, on the basis that if we ever come to change Pep Guardiola or when Pep leaves. We'll be interested in you. That's the type of dialogue Manchester United need to be having. Um, and, it, the, you know, it, it, they can't just try and do what they, they did when they tried to recruit Jurgen Klopp, which is, you know, suddenly phone him up, get him to meet Ed Woodward. Ed Woodward say, this is the Disneyland of football, come and <laughs> join us. You know, these guys, these elite guys do not work that way. They need, they do projects, they take on projects because. Um, it fits their sense of where they want their careers to go and what, they, what their values are. And you don't just sell those prospects um, in, in a phone call anymore. Not, 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 not unless they're in the Conti scenario where they just want to get back and work and they're itching to do something. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, if it comes down to it, and, and it could potentially come down to it if Solskjaer was to survive his way to the end of the season and Guardiola was to decide at the end of the season mm. that 
now I'm leaving Manchester City, um, find yourself another coach. That would be a very interesting decision to see in practice where the same coach is being approached by both clubs and he has the call between current Manchester United and the current Manchester City and, and which one does he go for? Because you, you would think the only thing ru- ruling against going to Manchester City is you've got a hell of a track record to yeah. come in on the back of so that yeah. the bar is extremely high in a way that it wasn't when Pep Guardiola came in. In fact, Pep Guardiola, one of the reasons he chose, chose Manchester City over some of the, the super clubs who were trying to hire him was he knew that winning the Premier League would be a huge success and um, s- s- repeat Premier Leagues would be even more so and they'd never been to a Champions League final before, never, never mind win the club. So he wanted somewhere with more ability to succeed in lower standards. The other thing I would note from that conversation we just had is that um, the last time Manchester United got involved in a negotiation with Leicester City for one of their most prominent professionals, they didn't really come out of it very well. Well, they, you know, depends which, um, which story you read, but I know exactly what you mean. The world's most expensive defender who, um, I think, you know, there's a song at Leicester City um, that the fans sing celebrating how well their club did out of those negotiations. So we've been talking about Leicester City and Manchester United together. Let's move into something which has a bit of a Leicester and Manchester United connection, Um, even if it's only tangentially, which is your co-authored book um, with Peter Schmeichel, uh, One, My Autobiography. Um, I'd like to ask you about the process of, of writing a prominent footballer's biography. Um, I, I see with this one, you are, you're credited as a co-author. It's not a, a, a ghost authorship where, um, where the, the journalist who works with the, the footballer is kind of hidden from view. How, how did that come about and, and um, how do you go about putting a biography together? It, it came about, first of all, just through a long-term relationship with Peter. Um, I've done quite a lot of ghosting. In my newspaper role, ghosting columns and articles um, with a variety of different managers and players. And Peter was actually the first one back in 2002 when I was um, quite new on the scene in England. I'd just come down from Scotland. I was working in the Northwest. Peter had moved from um, from Aston Villa to Manchester City and was already thinking about, I mean, he was nearly 40 and he was thinking about the next step in his life and getting into the media. So um, they put us together and I, I, I ghosted his column um, back then. And we, we, we just kept, we got on and maintained the relationship, kept, you know, spoke to each other over the intervening years. And then actually Peter called me back in 2015 and told me, um, we met in Manchester and told me he was thinking of doing a book and he'd like me to do it, but he wasn't entirely sure. Um, and again, we spoke about it then and nothing came of it. Um, and then, um, essentially lockdown is what, what forced, um, okay. Peter's hand, I guess. Um, I got a phone call again from Peter early in, um, first lockdown back in March, 2020, 
saying, hey, that book, let's do it. I've got time on my hands. <laughs> it was a real joy, actually, because yeah, we were all at that strange time um, in life where the world had changed and we, I guess we were all sort of wondering what we're going to do with ourselves. And um, throughout that summer, that, that, that first lockdown, Peter and I spoke pretty much every day. Um, and it, gave, it was our lockdown baby, we like to call it. It gave, I mean, it, it, I, I've written books before, but I haven't ghosted a book before. Uh, so the process was, was new to me, but, but fascinating. Um, it took, I mean, as I say, we, we spoke on Zoom most days, and it took um, probably about 100 hours of, of, of video calls of tape to get the material for the book. As the ghost or as the, the writer, your responsibility isn't just going to be the writing of it, but it's actually working out what material is needed and what structure that might go into. So you don't just sort of, you know, write, Peter, let's talk. I had to sort of plan out, right, what, what, what do I need to ask him about from his life? You know, what, what, what elements am I going to need? Which meant going and doing a lot of research on, you know, not just Peter's life, but which I knew bits of it already, of course, having known him. But I had to go back and research those old Manchester United seasons and the old Bromby seasons and what did he do at Sporting Lisbon so that I could ask him the right questions. So it was 100 hours but of sort of structured interviews with the ability that, you know, as a writer, again, you've got to be sensitive to what's interesting. That's part of your job in any interview. What is interesting? Um, so it was leading him down avenues that, 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 that were... Um, that when I heard him talk about them, I want to know more about that. An obvious one is his family story, which is an incredible, incredible story. I won't give away too much of it, but it, the story of his mother and father it just, just blows your mind. You know, his father was a Polish jazz musician who um, met his mother, who was a nurse on a cruise ship um, sailing from Denmark in, in the late 50s, height of the Cold War. Um, got together, um, got married. She went back to Copenhagen and said, right, make your own way if you want to come and join me. And the only way he could get out of Poland was to become a spy. <laughs> and then when he arrived in Denmark, he turned himself into the authorities, ended up in prison, and they only let him out um, when he agreed to become a double agent. So there was that story. And once Peter started talking about that, Make, I had to research the Cold War and I had to do all this and ask him the right questions and bring all that material out. And then once it, 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 it's, a, it's a long process from that point um, to then produce a book because you've got all the raw material. But what's essential is to, is to work out a way to structure it in print. And, and I just came up with an idea of 21 chapters, putting them in a certain order. You can do it chronologically. But I think that's kind of unchallenging for a reader. I was also, Peter and I were both conscious that the Manchester United period of, of his life was the most defining period, the most special period. He's a Manchester United fan. As a boy, he grew up dreaming of, of, of playing for United. And his reason for writing the book really was to answer the question that he had in his life. How was I able to realize these dreams? So that he wanted the Manchester United stuff prominent. And I did as well. So I decided to 
sort of front end the book with, with the United stuff and then delve back into his family story, his history um, and the rest of his career from that, but also draw in things like goalkeeping, his thoughts on goalkeeping, the story of Casper, which is important, his personal story, which, um, you know, he, he, he's someone that's grown up and matured a lot, he would say, and he's, he's, he's remarried, he's found the love of his life, get, getting all that sort of stuff in. He's a 57-year-old man. So there's an arc of, you know, the young, older guy looking back at the young athletes. A lot of strands to bring together. I'd say that that is like a kind of, it's like a fascinating jigsaw puzzle as a writer that you sit and you try and work out where all the bits need to, to go. And that's probably the thing that, 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 that I, I love the most actually was sort of solving that puzzle. And then after all of that, so what I've described there is probably um, a three-month process of planning and plotting and then setting a, a kind of writing schedule, um, which you know I, I was still doing my newspaper job, so it meant fitting it around that and family life and, and um, sort of a regime through the winter of getting up at sort of half five, six a.m. and doing three or four hours of writing before starting the rest of the day and sticking rigorously to that schedule. Um, and it was completed at the end of February in, in, in 2021. So that's almost a year long process. And then after that, um, your work's not finished because that's just, you've only just completed your first draft. From that point, Peter had to read it, come back with changes. Publishers fact-checked it, came back with their observations. Um, so it went through another two or three drafts of making amends. And then there's all the little things as a writer that I, again, I was new to the process, but working out picture captions, writing the acknowledgements, writing the preface, writing stuff for the, the, the blurb on the back. So lots and lots of bits and bobs. And, and the whole thing wasn't fully finished, I think, until the end of, end of July, actually. So, you know, a long process, actually. But then what you come out of at the end is something that's a bit more permanent than the newspaper stuff that you write it's 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 the, the best thing any author will tell you but writing a book is is getting the book in your hand at the end of it and looking at something and thinking this goes on my shelf and it's going to stay there for years and, and i've created helped create something i love so i love the process but i think it's a bit like childbirth um you um you sort of you love the process you also forget the absolute <laughs> and sort of quickly say, I'd like to do that again. Whereas, um, you know, there was, a, there was a point in the process where you'd be like thinking, why am I doing this? And I'll never do this again. That what's one of the things that strikes me about that is you're obviously an extremely experienced and accomplished interviewer. One of your real strengths, many strengths as a journalist, but a, a, a substantial strength and important thing in working for the Sunday Times is interviews. And it, yeah. it strikes me that that sounds a bit like the process you would use for a player interview or a manager interview in that you research, you have avenues you want to take uh, the interviewee down, you respond to, to what they say, but you structure the article yeah. and you, you can't, it, I, I was wondering whether you'd had a conversation with Peter beforehand in terms of what he felt the structure of his book should be, but it sounds to me like 
you had the conversations and then the structure came from the interview process. Yeah, you're, you're bang on, don't it, it, it is actually a much bigger version of, of, of what I do anyway, which is, which is the, the, the newspaper interview. Um, maybe something that listeners would be interested in is that I think there's an image of, of interviews based on broadcast interviews, which are the interviews we get to see. But what you've got to remember is that broadcast interviews are performance in a sense where the questions are as important as the answers in the sense that someone has to ask something and get a response. Whereas a newspaper, a print interview, as you know, Don, because you've, you've done some great interviews in that format yourself, and it, it, it's much more like a, or it should be much more like a natural conversation. Yeah. Um, where you can go on tangents, where part of the answer can be off the record and private and, and um, can be a discussion on themes where you arrive at um, something interesting. So you have to have a different way of doing it. And, and I would say that the preparation is, is absolutely fundamental because it has to be a guided conversation. So you have to arrive at that conversation with a really open mind to be be willing to 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 go in the directions that are interesting but but beyond that have an idea of of the key things that you need to ask and the key bits of information that are going to be interesting and have have that at the back of your mind um and at all times and in terms of the structure i think different i think i think i'd imagine every ghost and subject relationship is different. Peter just said to me, I want a well-written book and I trust you to do the writing part. So he didn't want to know what structure I had in mind. Okay. He didn't want to know that minutiae. He was willing to kind of delegate that to me. But I, I do know that of, of other writers who've had much more, um, interfering may not be the right word, um, because it's interfering in their own material, but much more hands-on subjects who want, wanted to know every part of the process. Peter didn't. He said, look, I've, I, you're the guy that I know. I rate you. You go and do your thing. Um, and I'm grateful to him for that because it, 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 it gave me, I feel, the ability to, um, to do what I do and to put my own stamp on it. And, and I think a better book arrived um, than, than if he'd been trying to um sort of forensically get involved in everything so two two quick questions did mm. you did you transcribe all 100 hours of, of video <laughs> interview i did I you did. did wow now i think i mean transcribing as you well know yes. is the worst <laughs> literally the worst part of of the job and different people have got different relationships with transcribing. Um, I'm an envy of writers who have got an ability to listen back to a tape and just pick out the key things and only transcribe them. That's not how my brain works. I need to transcribe all of it. Um, that's just how I am. Um, I agree, I'm exactly I'm, the same. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it's having a detailed mind. I, I hate the idea that I might just miss a nuance. I think yeah. words are important and every, Every sentence is important because the way someone expresses himself is nuanced. Um, so that's why I don't want to miss out on anything. And also, um, 
one one thing I didn't mention was one of the challenges you have as a ghostwriter is you have to be able to write in the voice of the subject. Yeah, you have to almost inhabit them and their personality and be able to when the reader's reading it, they feel like it's the subject talking to them, not the writer. And the more you listen to them talk, the easier I think that is. So that's another reason why I transcribed every single word because I wanted to have inhabited all of it. So that when I came to write, I had as much Peter in my head as possible. That's hugely impressive to to do that amount of transcription. But I I do I understand why because that that's something I've always experienced when transcribing mm-hmm. interviews. Is if you don't do it properly, you miss mm-hmm. stuff, and you you don't because because when you're in the interview process, you're trying to think of where you take mm-hmm. the person next. Um, you can miss parts of their answers or, or little details of their answers. And you listen back to it again and, and you get that, that feeling of, look, there's something really interesting there. Or by the time you finish the interview, if you've got a memory like mine, you've forgotten what they've said anyway. <laughs> so, so I think, yeah, that does, it is very important to do that, but I'm impressed you did it with, with a hundred hours mm-hmm. while doing all the work you have to do for the, 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 the Sunday times on top. The other question is what was Peter's reaction after he read the first draft when you, when you presented that structure to him and that huge body of work you'd done together and, yeah. and he had the opportunity to read his life in, in, in a book for the first time. Oh, I mean, it, it- that from from my from my point of view, the most nerve-wracking thing by a mile. <laughs> and I've done stage shows now with Peter to to publicize it, which are nerve-wracking, but the most nerve-wracking thing is sending him the first couple of chapters. And he was really he was lovely about the whole process because as I said, he let me do the writing and he did gently start asking, Can I see some of it? And Again, I, I, maybe just again, the way my mind works, I, I, I had to keep going back to him and saying, please, will you just let me finish it? Because I know what's going to happen. If I send you a chapter, you're going to want to start revising it. And <laughs> the way I need to be as a writer is I just, I just need to follow this thread until I've finished in the writing. So he, he very sweetly agreed to fit in with my process. But he was, him and Laura, his wife, they were getting more and more kind of wonder what it is, wonder what it is. So I was getting more and more kind of very gentle inquiries. I suppose we could see some of it. And, <laughs> um, uh, when I did send him it, he loved it. He loved it. Um, he was, um, it was such a massive relief. And the, the bit that was really important to me actually was his family story, because he really entrusted me with the story of his parents, which hasn't really, well, wasn't known before. And I've had to do a lot of research on that to try and piece together certain things about Poland at the time. So actually quite a lot of the information was, was, was fairly new to him, or at least the, the scenes described, because, you know, he, he, as I say, a lot, I had to do a lot of research, and, and he loved it. He loved that as well, felt I'd captured it properly. So I don't know what would have happened if he'd come back and said, I just, this, this doesn't work for me. Um, <laughs> I got, I, I, I'm sure people have to confront that. I know, in fact, I've been to one writer who the footballer involved, I think, needed nine different drafts. And right Gee. at the end was still asking for more drafts. And this writer had to say at the end, look, just 
sorry, <laughs> this has to be handed in now. Um, and it almost drove him mad, but Peter wasn't like that, thankfully. Contractually, was he allowed to have it redrafted as much as he wanted? Yes. Um, uh, uh, yes, up to the um, point of, you know, the, the ultimate print deadline. Um, and I think there's one, there's one final change that we didn't get in, but I mean, this was after four or five months of changes. One thing I found, I have found about the publishing world is it's a lot gentler than the um, newspaper world where, you know, as, as a newspaper journalist, you get used to writing your stuff, sending it to the office and then crossing your fingers and hope they don't mangle it and put a silly headline on it. And really, if you complain, you're kind of told, listen, son, you know, you've, you've done your bit now, let us do our bit. I have to say that doesn't happen regularly with the Sunday Times, but it might happen to in other environments. Whereas in the publishing world, they're just so, they're so nice and respectful. So any, um, any changes that they need to make or they want to make are only ever suggested. They're never enforced um, in the newspaper like they are in the newspaper world. And um, they, 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 kind of, they seem to work around the writer uh, or, or the subject in this case and to their needs, um, you know, rather than that, that, that sort of newspaper way when you're, you're kind of more of a cog in the machine. So it's a, that's one of the loveliest parts of the process, actually, is, is, is how, how sort of you're treated, especially if you come from a background when, <laughs> um, as I say, in print where, newspaper print where, you know, you're, 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 you're just sort of sometimes putting stuff into the, onto the conveyor belt and then other people will do other stuff to it. Nice, respectful, and we can see there's there's obviously a substantial amount of money behind this book because I see they've got Corey yeah. Stoll from House of Cards to do the uh, the sit down <laughs> theatre interviews with Peter. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, I, I I I I can't deny that Peter Russo has um, had an interesting second career after his uh, his, uh, his his failed political one, and uh, now appearing on stage with Peter Schmeichel. <laughs> So since we're talking about money, well, let's do a brief section on Newcastle United. Mm. Um, they are accelerating the process of appointing a manager and a sports director, um, part of a radical overhaul of the, the club structure, um, changes to recruitment staff. I believe there's going to be changes to the medical staff, substantial ones to those two. Um, Amanda Staveley has been interviewing candidates for both of those roles in person in recent weeks. Um, some of those uh, interviews have taken place outside the country and that you know, Newcastle are trying to keep this process as secret as possible. Um, they're in a bit of a dilemma in that they now realise they're in serious danger of relegation. I don't think they expected the, the, the club situation to be as bad as it was when they were finally granted approval. Uh, by the Premier League over a year after they, they initially agreed to deal with Mike Ashley. They're second bottom, four points from 10 games, six points off safety. And there's a feeling that they need to get a coach who understands that and is able to respond to the, the poor quality of the squad uh, and put together a game plan that will keep them in the division um, with the squad they have. They are likely to spend more now in January than they had originally intended. Um, but they're, they're conscious of the expense and the difficulty of recruiting in January. Um, 
what is your impression of of this this takeover so far, Jonathan? Um, and how difficult do you think it is to to take over a club in this situation, threatened by relegation, and want to simultaneously change coach and sports director for people who really don't have any experience of running a football club before? Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of those difficulties being being played out and and maybe a, a dawning of reality for Amanda Staveley and then PIF. Um, but this isn't quite as straightforward as it looked from the outside. And if you think about, you know, the, the narratives that always get told are, look at what happened when Abu Dhabi transformed Man City. Look at how Abramovich transformed Chelsea. You know, look at how Qatar have, have, have built PSG. But... You know, the, use those three examples. First of all, PSG were in a, a, a position where they were ready to dominate French, the French football scene. You know, it was there for them to do. Um, it wasn't that hard to become the dominant force. Chelsea, before Abramovich, had actually built a couple of very good teams, had won silverware under good managers, interesting managers, Hoddle, Viali. Pullet um, had some great players uh, and were in a decent state. You know, qualified for the Champions League. I think I'm right in saying, just before Abramovich came in, um, and of course Manchester City had already started the process of investing quite big under Tax and Chinavatra and building their club and had a stadium ready to go and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, this is a different situation, as you say, Duncan. This is a this is a club that hasn't been geared towards winning for what eighty years or something. Um, much as we love Newcastle, is in relegation trouble. Is facing a Premier League now, i.e., the other clubs who, unlike when Manchester City were taken over, um, and Abu Dhabi could be very creative, let's say, in some of the sponsorship deals and so on. Now you've got uh, other club owners looking very, very um, closely at anything they do from an FFP point of view, um, as it will be with UEFA. So it's a different environment. Uh, you know, it, it is taking over a club that, that's at a low ebb and a squad that's pretty ordinary, that's been built to just do enough and survive. Yeah. And they're trying to manage expectations at the same time. And it looks like. Unai Emery might be the choice, um, which is a very solid appointment from a, a coaching perspective, but not the kind of fantasy appointment that I think Newcastle fans um, thought they might be getting. So um, I, there's difficulties already. They haven't had a bounce. You know, I think, I'm, I'm sure they expected that there'd be some kind of bounce, just the takeover itself, and then dispensing with Steve Bruce would create a bounce. but. But no, the problems are deeper than that. Um, it's fascinating. And then on top of that, you've got a situation where Amanda Staveley is only an interim um, CEO, let's say. She's, not, you know, she's got a management contract to, to, to run Newcastle, but she's not, she's not the CEO. She's not in charge. She's running it on a temporary basis at the moment on behalf of Saudi Arabia, um, who are making the ultimate decisions 
Um, and that in itself creates um, a, a, a difficulty. And I think um, over time, they're going to have to resolve who's on the ground, who's actually running it. Manchester City only really took off properly when they had, you know, Bokat Khaldun replaced Suleiman Al-Fahim, you might remember, that he was briefly involved in fronting the takeover and um, became very hands-on. And Khaldun's a superb businessman. And then afterwards, Came Soriano and Bagheristan, but they'd already been Brian Marwood before then, so, and, and, and Gary Cook. So, you know, they, they had Newcastle just don't have anything like that. They've got a temporary, they've got a temporary CEO. They've got very little structure behind that, uh, and they've got a poor squad. They've got high expectations, and they might be about to attempt to hire a pragmatic manager. It's, it's a bit of a cocktail at the moment. Yeah, they did. They still have Lee Charnley filling the the chief executive role mm. on basically on an interim basis and yeah. going to Premier League yeah. meetings, which are, which are, end up causing them more problems. Amanda Stavely, PCP Capital, have a management contract. Mm. Um, I'm told that that will be remain in place as long as they're doing a good job. So obviously they are working to try and justify their position controlling the club. Um, and as you say, Saudi Arabia are fundamental in these decisions. So, so PCP are, are, are making recommendations on manager and sports director to Saudi Arabia, um, which Saudi Arabia have to sign off on. My understanding is that Saudi Arabia have representatives involved in some of these interviews with the candidates. Um, it, it is a, I think it's, it's a unique situation. We haven't seen it before in the Premier League. I think you're right to highlight what happened with Manchester City and highlight the fact that they started to get things right when Khaldun Al-Mubarak, who is one of the most senior politicians in Abu Dhabi and therefore has the ability to make decisions and access capital quickly, started taking a hands-on role in the football club. Newcastle United aren't there yet. You wonder whether they're going to get there. But then we get to the other question about Newcastle United. Is this involvement of a nation state of Saudi Arabia a good thing for the Premier League and a good thing for Newcastle United or not, in your view? Um, I, I think no is in terms of a good thing. Um, and without getting too heavy and, and going off on, on too great a length, um, I think the the human rights record um, and political record and, and warmongering record and all number of things of Saudi Arabia is is so problematic and um, so reprehensible, really. That I think it's hard to feel good about them being at the Premier League table. And I don't say that in, in I, I don't think I'm being hypocritical because I do feel um, that it's problematic having the sports washing that goes on at Manchester City. Um, we're talking about different degrees, perhaps, of regimes, but we're maybe talking about the same thing. So to add more sports washing to the mix and to add Saudi Arabia them, themselves, you've only got to look at um, the club, um, you know, trying to um, 
pretend it's well okay not saying they're going to be too cynical the, the, the club tweeting support for a gay footballer and contrast that with what happens to um, how homosexual relations are, are, are viewed and, and how gay people are treated in in um, in Saudi Arabia itself there's, there's a litany of, of, of difficulties that makes me think um, this is this is not good for football this is, these are not these are not good um, people to have involved. Is it good for Newcastle? Well, it's better than Mike Ashley. So, um, of course, it's good for you know if you if you say if you if we're just talking in that kind of narrow, um, does it give them a better chance of success? Is it good for um, is it good for a football club to have lots and lots of money? Yes, they can spend it and buy players and all that kind of stuff. Um, is it good for them as a institution? I think that's actually one I, 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 I'm reluctant and I feel this way about Man City as well. So I'm reluctant to preach to a set of supporters about what they should think. The, the, what I've said is what I think. It's up to supporters of the football club to, to make their own um, peace or, or, or divide, decide their own relationship with an ownership. Um, if, it was a, if, if, it was a, if, they took, if the Saudi Arabia took over Aberdeen, I'd give you an answer, but I'd, <laughs> I, I, I respect Newcastle. <laughs> Um, I respect Newcastle supporters' um, ability and intelligence to, to decide their own um, uh, stance on this. Um, but looking at it from the outside, I, I don't like it at all. And, and what would your answer be if Saudi Arabia changed their mind um, and rejected the obvious opportunity to buy Dundee mm. United and, and <laughs> went for Aberdeen instead? <laughs> I, honestly, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't want it. I mm. wouldn't want it. I'm... I, 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 I like what my football club is. Um, we haven't maybe had the best owners in the last. I mean, we've got a, a lovely guy who's trying his best. I'm not sure he's making the best decisions, but Dave Cormack and with Stuart Milne, a local businessman before, but at least I could identify with these people. They um, had a sense of the club similar to me and um, they hadn't dismembered any journalists. So. Um, <laughs> or locked women up for wanting to drive um, or imprisoned someone for 20 years because they, they tweeted something. So um, I didn't have to jump through any uh, moral hoops to accept them as my owners. And, and I'd like it to stay that way. I want, my, I, want football, I, want, I want my football club to be something I'm really proud of with my heart and soul and that I can enjoy the, the football side of it and not have to make moral compromises. So that's my personal, that it would be my personal view. The Aberdeen, the caveat is I'm a, luck, I'm a lucky man because I grew up as a kid um, watching Aberdeen conquer everything. So I've had my, had my fun, I've had my success. I'm not a Newcastle supporter who's um, had a lot of, you know, nearly all misery and, 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 and no success. So I can't put myself in their shoes, but if you just ask them Aberdeen, no thanks. Yeah, I, I, I think... Well, I know my view would be the same about Dundee United, and, and I guess you, mm. you make an important point there. We did both grow up mm. seeing successful football teams and, and very high quality football. Obviously, at Dundee United, we saw higher quality football than at Aberdeen, <laughs> but, but you know, you did get to experience the, the second best thing to Jim McLean. <laughs> Johnny, I thank you. I'm going to have a look at Aberdeen's Wikipedia page and just count those honours again. <laughs>
<laughs> it's about the DNA, obviously. It's not about uh, it's not about trifles like silverware. I mean, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer can tell you that. Yeah, that's <laughs> trophy. Tro- trophies are just for pride, aren't they? It's not an, an ego. <laughs> Johnny, thank you, thank you for coming on the Transfer Window podcast again. Uh, thanks very much for telling us about the process of writing a footballer's biography. Um, it's on sale now. Um, I don't think it's quite on sale worldwide yet, but I think in certain areas it comes onto the market yeah. early next year. Um, thank you, and we'll, we will hopefully have you on the podcast again. Great. My pleasure, Duncan. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the chat. This has been the news before it becomes news. You can follow us on social media at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. I am at Duncan Castles on Twitter. Uh, Johnson is at J Northcroft Um, if you like what you heard please share and review and follow our channels stay well and thanks for listening